You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season 11, episode four. If you've been following the podcast this season, you'll know that we're in conversation about art and the urge for transcendence. Our aim is to come at this subject from many different angles and viewpoints. One aspect of transcendence underscored in this episode is the refusal to settle for material gain as an ultimate aim. No matter how much fame or success or notoriety one may achieve, our deeper spiritual yearnings do not go away. But if we settle for less, if we let our deeper passions wane, or if we ignore the cries of our spirit, the outcome can be destructive. As writer Anne Rand said, we can ignore reality, but we cannot ignore the consequences of ignoring reality. In this episode, Dove award-winning rapper and author KB talks to me about the importance of staying rooted in truth as an antidote to living the status quo. His book, Dangerous Jesus, much like his music, presents a disruptive, subversive, system-threatening portrait of Jesus that counters the Christianity of the land and our own tendency toward complacency. Be sure to listen to the end of this episode to hear KB share his perspective on our theme of art and the urge for transcendence. Thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Stephen Roach, and this is my interview with rapper, hip-hop artist, KB. KB, thank you so much for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast, my friend. I am glad to be here. Thank you for having me, my brother. Man, I have been enjoying your music a lot lately, Uh. primarily because my son has become a huge fan of yours. And so he actually introduced me to you and we started listening on the way to basketball practice with him. And I was like, and this guy is amazing. He's really good. <laughs> My son was like, I've been trying to tell you. <laughs> tell your son I said thank you. I only have like 10 fans, so <laughs> well, I, I know almost all of them by name. So tell them I said thank you. Yeah, that's right. He's one of them. He's one of them. I love it. Well, I'd love to just get started and talk to you a bit about your background as an artist, as a rapper. How did this all begin in your life? Have you always been an artist in this regard? No, not necessarily. I think for one, I have an interesting origin because the doctors that evaluated me from birth were confident that I would not be able to speak. And if I could speak, I I wouldn't be able to speak well. And um, my mom never, there's a a old song we used to sing, whose whose report will you believe? Mm. Uh, I will believe the report of the Lord. She never believed the reports of the doctors on multiple occasions, even over weird stuff. Like there, there was like a, I was supposed to be missing all my teeth down here. They, they, they would, like my baby teeth would come out and then there'd be no adult teeth afterwards. And she was like, that's not going to happen. And uh, she prayed a lot. I don't know if it was miracles or the doctors missed something, but I got teeth down here. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so I think there was a kind of, uh, there's some providence um, of God uh, preparing me to be someone who was going to primarily serve people through the things that I said. Yeah. So that was there. I think that I, I saw a streak of that as as I was growing up, but never had any artistic leaning that I thought of um, that that I that I would identify uh, myself 
of as having. I mean, I I would write little songs for my mom for Valentine's Day or, you know, might, you know, be playing around at the house on the keyboard or something like that, but nothing nothing serious. Um I played the trumpet for a long time, but again, I I think I did that out of compulsion. I was just my mom made me do that and uh so I was playing played the trumpet for like 6 or 7 years, something like that. And um but n- never saw myself as a creative, was heading to college uh, to get into business, or I thought I might be a lawyer because uh, I was always good at arguing. <laughs> so it wasn't until I was 16 that somebody gave me a Christian hip hop CD, and that that CD changed my life and uh, radicalized me towards Jesus. And it was in that that I said, "Oh my goodness, if this has meant so much to me, what would it mean if if I was making this kind of music for other people? There should be more people doing this." that there might be more people creating this experience for folks ac- across the globe. And that's how, kind of how I got into Christian hip hop and discovered that there was some giftedness there. And all the way through college, I still, we did this, we did, I did music and ministry throughout the city. Folks knew us as these Christian artists, but it never, I, I, didn't, I didn't think it was possible for it to be a career. And that, and that, that wasn't the plan. Um, it wasn't until at the end, end of college, I got offered a record deal that then turned into a full out career. And, and and here we are today. Yeah, that's amazing. So it sounds like your faith has always been an integral part of your art form. Right. What is that like for you? Are those two one and the same in your experience? Yeah, I, it's it, it depends on what angle we talk, talk about it from. I think from a, you know, in terms of just, the, the, the common grace of God has given me uh, this good gift in hip hop that I get to use to shed light on, you know, uh, in dark places. I also get to worship him with the art form. And I get in some ways to benefit from the opportunities that the art form has afforded to me in terms of writing and podcasting and selling fashion lines, stuff like that. But in another respect, you know, this is, this is a job that I have. It's a vocation for sure, but it's it it is my my work. And at work, I get to talk about Jesus as much as I want, and uh, and and that's kind of how I think about it. And if I do interviews anywhere, we all recognize that I am here as a artist in the industry. This is my job. I do this. Some would say at a high level, but when <laughs> all ten fans. All ten of my fans think that I'm world class, <laughs> and so we all we, we we're all on the same page about that. So, but my artistic burden there is no burden there is no artist that's worth his or her salt that doesn't have a burden that they're not trying to shape people. And my what I do to no hate on anyone else, but what I do is I shape people for the kingdom explicitly, purposefully, and intentionally. That's what I get to do at my job. And, you know, praise God, this is a, a free country and I'm a Floridian. I get to basically have not so many government restrictions. And what I'm doing with my freedom <laughs> is I'm talking about Jesus a lot. So that, that's also how I look at it from a, a workplace standpoint. <laughs> well, your music and your lyrics carry this deep-rooted sense of purpose and mission. And even just hearing you talk about your faith with the passion that you have 
it's really countercultural for much of what we experience in America today. And I mean, I think in many ways, perhaps you would agree that there seems to be a lot of meaninglessness or a lot of loss of purpose in our culture or a yep. lot of loss of the North Star, so to speak, you know. And so talk to me some about this deep-rooted sense of purpose and mission that you carry and I would imagine a love for this culture that would compel you to create the Archer Maker. Yeah, absolutely. Very well said. I think one perspective that I think is worth talking about is the the challenge that everyone has that is excited about something, passionate about something. If you want to be a part of a movement, maybe you're helping to lead or shape a movement, that that fire that exists in that passion is bound to cool off and to, to, to fade. I think about the, the, the words of cultural philosopher Tupac when he said um, that uh, you rarely see a 30-year-old revolutionary. Mm. And what he was alluding to is the fact that the world has a way to calm you down. Okay, now let's start talking about 401ks and, 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 your, and your IRA <laughs> and, and, and your, what school your kids are going to go to and soccer practice and, you know, that kind of stuff. And none of those things are, are wrong, but you can lose that fervor. And I, what I have found to answer your question to be among the most important things for me to do is try to protect my passion. Protect mm-hmm. my passion. I, I've been saying that since I was 17 years old. Protect your passion. That's going to drive everything. And when my passion begins to wane, that's when I realize there's a problem. Not when my platform begins to wane. This, and, and that is the mistake that a lot of folks will make in my space, is that we see the kind of favor, power, love, and success of God we see it on the met- on the the meter of how well am i doing how am i streaming how am i selling how am I, are the, the awards and then all the while you can be going deep into that stuff and then you don't realize you don't even love jesus anymore you don't even think about that you know what i'm saying i wouldn't do half of the stuff that i would have done back in 2007 you know what I'm saying? And I wouldn't stay in those places. I wouldn't hang out with those people. I wouldn't go on those trips. I wouldn't serve in those ministries. You've completely lost who you are, but you don't know it because, how did I say it? I think I said it like this in the book that, I don't know if I said it in the book, but success covers a multitude of sins. Mm. Success covers a multitude of sins. I think I said it like that in the book. Wow. And it's hard to realize that the sink is shipping when everybody is partying on the deck. And I think that, what is important for me in terms of that burden being real is continuing to do things to protect my passion and realizing that when I'm losing that passion, that the problem is there. That's when the problem, my, my career has continued to grow. If, if, but that does me, what, what does it mean to gain the world of more growth and lose my soul? And I want to intentionally do the things to protect my passion, which looks like being in community, confessing, therapy. It, it looks like making sure that my, my home life is together, loving my wife, uh, making sure that I'm growing in rest. Those kinds of things help me to keep the same vigor. And let me throw one more thing on there too. Here's one other thing to throw on there. I know how to make money outside of music. And from these days, for, for, this, is, this, is, this is never talked about. And that's why I want to say it. 
financial stability is also a part of discipleship. And you see this very profoundly in in to, to the book of Thess- in, in the book of Thessalonians when Paul is talking to the church about they're not being dependent on sponsors, meaning don't allow yourself to be paid for by those who are sort of funneling their resources to your ministry. Don't let that be the thing that determines what you say. So it's good for some of you to work with your own hands, to be able to find some financial structure that isn't completely on the back of the people you're ministering to. There's some value to that because the other thing that happens more than not is that your passion begins to erode when you're trying to chase money because you need that money to pay for all the infrastructures that you have built based off of what your passion has created. And you see this happen, not just with Christians, but you know, there's a particular politician, I won't bring his name up right now, that was in New York and did great things, shut down the mob, was, was able to lead in crisis and all those things. And then year after year, the money started to be, that, that stuff gained some success for him and he started to be able to monetize that. And before you knew it, he was a shadow of who he was when he started his bid. He, he ran on justice and he was fighting for justice. And now he's on who has the biggest paycheck. That happens to people. So you also want to not be living above your means, making sure that you have other ways to secure yourself so that you're not just beholden to the people that are paying your bills. I think that's another important thing for leaders to think about as they, uh, you know, try to protect their passion and keep their burden. It sounds like what you're saying in the midst of all of this is don't be distracted by the glamour of the exterior life if your own interior life is falling apart at the roots. That's good. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And so that's what I'm hearing you talk about is the importance of that rootedness, the, the importance of a healthy, strong interior life as it relates to the things that, that we do in our realms of influence or in culture, yes. whatever it may be. And honestly, it's very refreshing to hear an artist of your caliber talk about the importance of the rooted life, yes. you know, some of us have to learn that the hard way. Yeah, brother. And I have to. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You said one other thing in your book that I actually highlighted to bring up. You say in the book that as an artist, I know the temptation to organize my life in a way where my luxuries become necessities. <laughs> Talk to me about that. Oh, the struggle. Um <laughs> Yeah, I was kind of alluding alluding to it earlier as a as a way to identify that your passion might be draining is uh, where, you know, at one point you had no problem stacking chairs after church. Uh, but now it's like, you know, what if somebody stops me for a picture or, you know, I, you know, that's I've graduated from that. I think that it's rarely said this way. But the truth of the matter is, when Paul is warning the in the book of Romans, he's, he's warning us to not abuse grace. Don't use grace 
as a means to continue rebelling against God. Uh, because the more you rebel, the more grace you get, and God's glorified by grace. Don't do that. Don't run that equation because that's not how grace works. Also, rebelling against God is not good. It's not a gracious thing. It's not a fruitful thing. Not only does it sin against your maker, but it is bad for you, your community, your family, so on and so forth. And I think that the temptation that needs to be said because we're tempted to take advantage of grace and to take God's kindness, his mercy. The Lord was merciful in allowing me to, how many, how many of us is our story is that I did this thing I should not have done last time. And I, I got mercy. I was still able to step on stage and do something great, or I was still, the, the blessing still came through. God used it somehow for something even better. You can then become spiritually spoiled mm. where you, 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 are, you are basically taking something that God is giving to you to cover your fall and you're now planning the falls because God's going to cover me. <laughs> and I think that that's analogous to what we can do with comfort. And we don't take a moment to say, hey, the fact that I'm in this facility right now that, you know, that I own, and uh, well, I don't own the facility, we're leasing this place, but there's a company here that, that I own, and the team that we have, and the fact that we're able to, uh, to, to partner with so many great people are doing great things for the kingdom, so on and so forth. All of those things are gifts that flow from the Father of lights, and I have to see them humbly, or if the Lord says, we're not doing that no more, KB, we're going to do something else that I don't hate him, hate my life, and hate everybody else. Mm -hmm. And that's a muscle because that's going to happen for all of us. At some point, the Lord's going to disrupt. That's I want to use the phrase dangerous Jesus on purpose because Jesus is a good kind of danger to sometimes the things that we think we need in our life that I can't live without. And I don't know who I am if I don't have these things. God will disrupt for your good. Because on the other side, he has something much better to give you. And that's why this Jesus, in the way that he threatened things that threaten us, it is always to protect us from something that is ultimately not good for us. So what I'm saying is that there's a muscle that I want to be I want to be firming up that muscle in everyday life to remember that the graces that are in my life are that. They are gifts from God that I dare not take and demand God always. This is what we're doing for relationships. When we come in contact with somebody and we're getting to know them and they begin to act in a way that's different from what I feel like I deserve. Now, I understand there's a category for abuse. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about us not always needing to have our Starbucks order exactly the way we need it for us to be content. Because if the Lord wants to change things around in relationships and call, I use that as an analogy to say for life, that if God wants to move things around and we can still have substantial, enjoyable, full lives, knowing that our God has something better for us in the disruption than the com in comparison to the comfort.
Yeah, so good. I love that view talking about Jesus as the divine disruptor. Yeah. And it's like, you know, we often talk about in the art world that art is disruption. And yeah. so when I think about Jesus in those terms, it's that. like he's he's the great artist himself. But listen, man, you've mentioned it several times. You've got a brand new book coming out. Yeah. And I have the honor of having a pre-release copy. Love it. That I've been reading. It's amazing. Thank you, brother. The title is Dangerous. Jesus. Yes. But you get to that title by marking out fragile, marking out compliant, marking out irrelevant, and then introducing Jesus as dangerous Jesus. And at the beginning of the book, you said somewhere along the way, we traded following Jesus for creating a tame, moldable, silent Jesus who yeah. doesn't mind following us. Yes. Talk to me about this book, my friend, and tell me what motivated you to write it and why this book is important for us in this cultural moment. Yes. So first of all, just quickly, uh, I went with the title Dangerous Jesus because I knew that you, in, in some respects, you got to open it to find out exactly what I mean. And I know that there are a lot of folks that are critical <laughs> of Christianity that might be like, Danger, Jesus is dangerous. Let me read this thing. Uh, <laughs> well, there, there was a smidge of marketing in there. Um, but I also, <laughs> more importantly, and this is the more salient reason I to chose that, that term, is because when you think about, particularly in the arena of sports, when someone is a threat, now this dude is a triple threat, or someone that, hey, that guy is dangerous, that girl is dangerous, meaning that when they step onto the court, the, or they, the field, or in the ring, wherever, when they are there, they become a problem for the opposition. But at the exact same time, they are the solution for their team, that they become this, at the same time, a threat to the threats, but a safety net for those who are in allegiance and alliance. And in a lot of ways, that's who Jesus is. Jesus is this force that is not moldable and compliant and fragile, doesn't need to be always uh, defended by, by those who are upset what about what people are saying on the news or doesn't need the, the votes of, doesn't need, Jesus is in a league of his own. He is his own league. He does not he, he does not need, in, 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 as it were, to be propped up by human imagination and production. But if you get down to the pure, peaceable, justice-standing Savior of the world, if that Jesus has stood up in front of people, societies change, people change, cultures change, businesses change, churches change, that Jesus in his real biblical sense. And I'm doubling down on that because there are so many interpretations of Jesus that masquerade in his name. And what I do in the book is I'm bringing people back to that Jesus because that Jesus is the one who, when he is on the scene, revival is inevitable. But we have to get back to that Jesus, return to that Jesus, preach that Jesus. And I, throughout the book, am contrasting that Jesus with what Frederick Douglass calls the Christianity of the Lamb. So you have the Christianity of Christ in contrast to the Christianity of the Lamb. Your Christianity of the Lamb is actually a danger, not only to your soul, but it's a danger to societies. 
it's the kind of Christianity that allow allows for wholesale injustice to reign while still worshiping on Sunday faithfully. It is that Christianity that has to die, and by God's grace, it is dying. And the Christianity of Christ, the one that's captured our hearts, has changed our appetites, that has sent us out on this mission that we have seen heal the broken, rescue the lost, that Christianity. I want to be a part of, and I'm hoping to do in that book, bringing, uh, being a part of the, the, the rise of that kind of faith, which I think is far, which I know is far more impactful, far more attractive, and is the only kind of Christianity that God is going to bless. I was running with the set, yeah. running with the set, yeah. Yeah. we don't never flex with this rep, hear me, no. did you expect, I don't need respect, I'm the threat, one thing I wanted to ask you about, because in the book you talk about, let me say it this way, we've been accustomed to the idea of cancel culture. Yeah. But you say that Jesus can't be canceled. Right. Yeah. Jesus can't be canceled. Man, I, I am always struck by the fact that Christianity, as it expressed itself in the first three centuries of his existence— I am always struck at how much work the faith did in such a short period of time. As the book of Acts says, that they it, it flipped the world upside down. And I was, I'm grateful, um, Rodney Stark, who actually just passed away here, here recently, um, he did this. I love his work. His, his work is amazing, where he details, well, what were they doing? What did they look like? How were they shaped? And I, I spent a good period of uh, a significant part of the, of the beginning of the book talking about in the first second chapter, I believe, one of the chapters. I am talking about that study of what these folks look like, and what we see is that much better men, excuse me, much better women, much better uh, attempts to rid the world of Christianity have been launched. And I'm not talking about you getting shadow banned on Twitter. I'm talking about people getting their heads lopped off by the state. You know, much better attempts have been made to be done with Jesus. But once Jesus gets out of the grave, he's never going back in, King. This is just the reality. He reigns and rules right now. So that gives me confidence apart from what folks might do. This Jesus doesn't go back down. He only rises. And with his resurrection will be the resurrection, the reconciliation of all things in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's what I mean. And we can be at peace in that. Don't get scared every four years that Jesus might be removed from your nation. <laughs> what a silly thought that that the, the the strength of the kingdom is predicated upon who you got in the White House. How crazy is that? Are we talking about the Lord of Glory here? Who are we talking about? And that's what I'm saying. Like, what's the worst that could happen? They could take our lives. Jesus would say, "In heaven, that will be a a, a moment for rejoicing." And you can say those kinds of things and appreciate free speech and, and religious religious freedom. Those aren't in in contradiction of one another. We can love the securities and the privileges that we have here, but we are not enslaved to them. And because 
of who our Jesus is, the one who cannot be canceled. In some ways, that goes back to what we just talked about earlier when we were talking about not letting our luxuries be looked at as necessities, you know what I mean? Absolutely, yes, Yeah. absolutely. Well, so much of your book, especially in the, the latter chapters, seems like you're really going after this idea of identity. Yes. For the reader and for the people. And even, you know, with what we began talking about with the exterior life and the interior life, it seems like what you're really wanting people to know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but what I get from the book is one, let's see Jesus for who he is. And then in light of having that solidified in truth in ourselves, let's also see who we are in the light of truth and how his identity and our identity coincide and relate with one another. Absolutely. You said right here, this is the identity God desires for all of us. I'd love to just talk to you more about that, about that identity, the rootedness of our identity and how knowing him in the light of truth and knowing ourselves in the light of truth correlate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I had a, I did a devotional with this really large band, like they're like an arena act, and I led the devotionals. And I asked them, "What is the ultimate win for you? Right? What? How do you know that you've arrived?" And I know, for if if we're real, if you get a Grammy, and, and you can tour arenas, you've arrive. <laughs> so don't 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 get me don't get me wrong. There's a lot of value in that and I totally understand that that is a KPI that is uh uh is is uh <laughs> important. But for the follower of Jesus, that cannot be enough. It cannot be nearly enough. For us, what the agenda, the 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 project that is always do and never done is we ourselves want to become more like Jesus and help other people do the same. And if that stay, if that stays as the ultimate win, that when you look at your life in something as small as I would have you accept your Grammy, get off stage, go out to dinner afterwards with your Grammy in hand and somebody comes up to you and says, uh, hey, uh, you got a Grammy in your hand. Who are you? And you're like, well, I'm such and such. And they're like, I never heard of you. And in that moment, you think, that's okay. And not go into pride and arrogance and or anything like that, <laughs> but you'd be like, that's, that's fine. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? God mm-hmm. knows my name. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Moments like that could be more spiritually impressive than taking home the the biggest award of the night. What I'm saying is if you keep transformation of your God's sort of influence on you central, and then how I help other people do that, you know, even in my music, like I, I I love this, not because y'all were able to run my numbers up, but not simply because of that. That's great. But I'm also loving that it made you think, it made you feel, it made you uh, recover, it, 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 it made you believe. That's, those are our W's. We're playing a different game here. And, and I think in a lot of respects, that's what I want 
to to keep as the the the, the agenda, the 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 main the meta narrative, everything that we do is that Christoformity for myself and others. Yeah. Danger. This season on the podcast. We're talking about art and the urge for transcendence. Yes. And what I mean by that is like, we as human beings, regardless of our background or our belief systems, we carry within us this human desire to connect with something much larger than ourselves, right? Yes. And you and I may define that as, as God, or we may talk about it in terms of our spiritual relationship with yeah. Jesus. Yeah. But this desire to connect with something larger than ourselves exists within all of us. Yes. And the arts tend to be one of the more pronounced ways that that deeper human yearning gets expressed. Yes. And I would just love to hear you riff on that a bit. Whatever comes to mind on that subject of art and the urge for transcendence, what does that evoke in you when you hear me bring up this subject? So for me, it invokes uh, humility because I get to do that for people. Like I, I get to be, as it were, a guide. I, I get to be the person I, I'm thinking about. The vision in my mind is uh, the opening of a window that we all need to peer into the other world. We were made to have eyes for the other world. And in a lot of ways, what music does is it's like the key that unlocks these locked windows. And in music, I can unlock the window, lift it up, and then you can see out, even if it's just for a moment, that there is this grand reality that is beyond your articulation. I was joking with my wife the other day about how the human brain knows exactly how the body works. It knows to the T. My, my brain knows how to move my hands right now, how to how to talk to different parts of my body that are hurting or to let me know. There's a whole complicated system that my brain is an expert at running and explaining to itself. But it doesn't explain it to me because I don't know how my body works. It doesn't say, <laughs> hey, if I think, well, how does, how does, um, you know, when anesthesia enters my body, what, what happens next? My brain doesn't say, well, well, first of all, what it does is it, 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 it goes to the amygdala and then it, it doesn't, doesn't do that. It has all of the knowledge of how things work, yet I have no access to it. The only way I get access to that knowledge is through books, is learning about what it is and, and way that my body works and be, I have to be taught it. And I think in a lot of ways, music is like that with the spiritual realm, that there's a spiritual realm all around you. There are grander realities all around you. I'm not talking about just like angels and demons. I'm talking about the big metaphysical realities of our lives that you can't put, a, put under a microscope. You know what I'm saying? Like mm -hmm. love and joy and trauma and transformation and, and, and drive and passion all of those things are here and around us, and we need artists to bring the language 
or in that analogy, the knowledge of how all of that works so we can look into this world that's all around us, but unbeknownst to us. But we need that. We need to have that world in our lives so that we might be who we ought to be. So I think in a lot of respects, I'm just re-saying what you said, that (laughs) the artist is a kind of key to the window that opens people up to the grand visions of otherworldliness. So that and, and it's transcendental, transcendental. And I feel, man, that's what gives me goosebumps. Like, you know, somebody like, man, I listen to your song and it made me sense and feel and because it's not our songs. I know it's just a key. I'm just a key opening a window. Because you can't say that my, you can't literally say that my song saved your marriage. Like, I didn't sit down with y'all and work through this thing. I didn't have a three hour song that went through all the issues. But people will say my song saved their marriage. What are they talking about? They're saying that this was the portal into where transformation happens. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I got it through your song. Oof. We get to do that? Yes. Far be it from me to make that a small thing. So good. So good. KB, thank you so much, man, for spending this time with me today on Makers and Mystics. I appreciate your heart. I appreciate who you are as an artist, as a thinker, as a musician, as someone offering cultural critique. I just appreciate all that you're doing, my friend. Thank you. Hey, man. God bless you, bro. Thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to give us a follow on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and leave a kind review on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art. Music.